Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. To preview the NBA Finals, I, I wanted to have on Seth Partnow. He writes for the Nylon Calculus, Washington Post, Fancy Stats, B-Ball Breakdown, lots and lots of other sites. And it was fun because we talked at the beginning of the playoffs and to talk about it now. And we go through a lot of the different dynamics from the stars to lineups that they can use and really trying to get an estimate on how good the Warriors were during the season and how close the Cavs, once they had their more settled lineup where though obviously they're comprised a little bit differently now with Kevin Love's injury. We talked for about 50 minutes. I really enjoyed talking with him. Hope you enjoy it too. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me again. So I had a lot of trouble wrapping my brain around this finals, despite predicting it at the beginning of the postseason. Did you have a similar challenge? It's sort of a heart versus head thing a little bit. Um, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the, Cavs having a chance, um, kind of uh, objectively, but then, but then the big giant, but LeBron James guy on one shoulder gets really loud. So that's that's kind of the biggest thing that that kind of kind of gives me pause about you know, best player in the world versus all this other stuff. It's, it's kind of the analytical quandary, I guess. Yeah, and because LeBron, while Curry was the MVP, LeBron is somebody who has so many spillover benefits in both directions when he's playing well. I mean, his defense hasn't been what it was. He offensively and defensively can can make life so much easier for his teammates and at the same time also make things hard for his opponents just because he draws so much attention. Yeah, and a, a great equalizer, kind of having... Uh... Just someone who doesn't, who if things are going right for him, it doesn't matter what you do, he wins because he does. It's it's sort of it's we first kind of saw it uh, the first time he made the finals win. You know that Cavs team had no right to beat the Pistons, but you know LeBron just could not be stopped, and 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 there you go. And now he's not the same physical, not quite at the same level of physical dominance he was then. You know due to age and miles in the body, but other parts of his game has improved that he can at times have kind of the similar impact. Yeah, and when he was in Cleveland the last time, he's, he he kind of missed his peak defensively for the in the four years that he wasn't there. So you're comparing a little bit closer to apples to apples on that side of the ball. Yeah, I think part of it is also that that uh, you know he's got a, he's got the better post game now. He's probably a slightly better jump shooter now, and 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 some of those things. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. How do you? compare his supporting cast here with some of the other finals teams that he's been on? The, the, the first question answer that depends a lot on where Kyrie is. 
I think we've seen a lot of stuff. We're, we're, we're recording on Wednesday. A lot of stuff has kind of come out today that Kyrie may have like retweaked his knee in the last couple of days. Am, am I imagining seeing, having seen reporting to that effect? I, I thought I saw something like that and something that it's very unlikely he'll be particularly close to 100%. Yeah. Which can be similar, but could also be just that it, this is an injury that takes a little while to get back from. Yeah. So depending on where Kyrie is, I mean, it, the, the more hurt Kyrie is, the more this starts to look like that 2017. It's certainly not. It, it, I don't think it's it's approaching kind of especially the Miami title teams in terms of uh, of star power. Maybe he, maybe some of the role guys are better than some of the role guys in that Miami team. But I always thought that you know some of those guys got got maybe a little little under uh, underappreciated themselves on those those Heat teams, kind of the, the Mario Chalmers and the Chris Anderson kind of kind of guys. Yeah, I can def- um, I can definitely see that. And as you said, the difference with Kyrie in, in a way that more parallels Dwayne Wade is that early in LeBron's Cavs career, or in basically his entire Cleveland career, he didn't really have that secondary creator. And I think Kyrie's really the only other guy on this Cleveland team that can do that. Uh, I mean, JR can create. The problem is it's mostly for JR, which, you know, <laughs> uh, has been, you know, in the last couple rounds of the playoffs, has been mostly a good thing, but it's. Uh, it's you know there's there's been some revisionism about how how everyone always knew that JR that JR could be this reliable in the playoffs, which I think is one of the sillier kind of things that's come up in the postseason in the kind of the discourse of the postseason. But that's that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, especially given his penchant for taking tough shots. I mean, we've actually gotten some great quotes about that during the playoffs, but. Those shots, yeah, he he can make a higher percentage of them maybe than some other guys, but that's not the uh, go-to strategy for anybody, much less a team with LeBron James on it. Yeah, I mean, even if you take away the baggage and you just say, okay, it's Jamal Crawford instead of you know uh, instead of J.R. Smith, it's like that stuff can can work for you, but it's not the kind of thing you necessarily want to rely on. It does, so even taking away kind of the uh, the kind of the pers- the the questionable um, discipline slash personality type stuff that that are kind of part and parcel of the J.R. Smith experience, it's still you know a very unreliable score to have someone who who likes to take so many tough shots but can make them. Yeah, but can make them is an is an important part of this. And what I think about with LeBron teams, and it's something that changed after the trades that they did, is that. What you want at bare minimum with him is are guys who can hit shots that he creates for other people. And while this Cleveland team is not perfect, and I think they'd be a lot better if they had Kevin Love for this exact reason, they do have a lot of guys who can do that, like James Jones, Amon Shumpert, Jr., Kyrie, when he's close to 100%. Like, he can still hit, he can drill open shots. Yeah. You say James Jones, I don't think this is going to be a... I... I, I wonder how much James Jones is going to be able to be on the court this series. Put See, it that way. That's that's interesting for me because I think that the reason that you would want him on the court is because he reduces Draymond's ability to be a help defender. I, I just think that, that it's unlike either Atlanta and the state that they were in or Chicago, um, kind of not counting Boston as a real series, Um uh, both because Boston wasn't very good and also because Kevin Love was in place in that series, so it's just a different team. Golden State doesn't have the hiders, you know, that those other teams do. Like, who do you – against Chicago, they, they, they stuck him on, on Joe Noah and basically dared Chicago to try to post Noah up. I mean, do you stick, you stick him on Bogut? That seems like you'll lo- give up a million offensive rebounds, plus he's just going to be 
guarding Steph on every pick and roll. So, like, where where do, who does he guard that isn't just a, a massive liability for you if you're Cleveland? Is is my question about about you know James Jones specifically? I think you can put him on Draymond, but as you said, the challenge there is that you can't switch. You can't. You, you yeah. just you just can't switch. And you also you can't do that if you're going to have Kyrie on Curry at the same time because that would just be hot molten death. Yeah, and then so you you've got none of the benefits of of having like a big guy on Draymond, but all the drawbacks now because all you know Draymond is now kind of working that that. Have I talked to you about this before? I, I I was talking to to Jim Peterson last week. What he calls pocket skills for big men, kind of able to you know catch the ball around the elbows or the top of the key and and, and make a quick play. Which you know Draymond is is as a four man is that's that's his best attribute. And you're basically if you're putting someone like James Jones on him, you're basically freeing him up, freeing him up to to utilize that, that range of skills. Yeah, that's true. It is, he does have a little bit of propensity for turnovers, but that's partially because his vision is better than most guys. So he'll make a pass that is, let's say, 95% there, and that 5% comes and bites him. But he, he is very good in that space. Yeah, and that's and that's a, a huge part of why kind of that, that uh, Draymond of the four lineup works, is you, you get a guy who can who can make those, play, those plays um, it, kind of in that area, and someone who's got a little bit more range than, say, David Lee, who's actually got, you know, Similar range of, of passing skills, but uh, doesn't quite cause the defense to, to react to him in the same way because he's not as good a shooter. Yeah, and because his instincts are oftentimes more to create for himself yes. than for others. Which yes. is, is There's an important difference there, which I think is actually also illuminated with LeBron, which is capacity versus intention. And so like LeBron is a great guy at creating for himself and others, and his intention is to do both at the same time. David Lee kind of does one or the other, and he focuses more on one than the other. Yeah, and also, I mean, we're we're speaking of a David Lee that that probably doesn't really exist anymore at present. Um, I, I know that uh, Nate Duncan has talked a fair amount about it, about his 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 conditioning maybe hasn't kept up as his role has decreased, and that might be some of it. And or just could be that he's you know just rusty and not in not in rhythm because of the lack of playing time. But he's I don't know we're we're probably talking more about David Lee than. <laughs> then, then he'll actually play in meaningful minutes in the series already. Especially so. considering Festus Azili has done well, and Azili definitely has a role in this series because he's a solid rim protector. His offensive game was better in the in the Rocket series, though that was mostly because he showed anything on that end. But he provides a distinct value against a team like Cleveland that will try to get to the basket. Sure, I, I think he could be useful this series. I also I'm I'm wondering how much. Uh, Golden State is going to want to play with a traditional big on the floor this series. I kind of think that uh, if Golden State is playing small and, and Cleveland is playing big, I kind of feel like that's net advantage Golden State a lot of the time. That's definitely true, especially in terms of if you want to switch, if you want to do some versatile things out there. And also that opens up something that I've been hearing a lot about with especially national people talking about this series is the idea of putting Andre Iguodala on LeBron and yeah he can he can do some spots there and he's a talented defender but both Iguodala and Draymond are I think are far more valuable as help defenders and if you put one of them on LeBron they can't help that's their job yeah I actually I went went back and watched a lot of the uh, the the February game between these two teams and I thought Harrison Barnes did a did a very credible you know very credible job on LeBron made him work. I mean, LeBron had a huge game, but 
you, I mean, a lot of that was LeBron hitting LeBron shots. And, and just in terms of how Golden State's defense like reacted and, and bent or broke, it wasn't necessarily plays where, where Barnes was guarding him straight up that, that those happened. Actually, he had a lot, he had a lot more success against Iggy than he did against Barnes. And, and so I think that that might be something that we see a fair amount of, especially because Barnes isn't a guy who, if, if he gives you nothing offensively because he's worn out from, you know, playing that much defense, that's okay, you know? Yeah, and and that trade-off is actually something that I've been thinking about in terms of the advocacies that some people have had, and I've had trouble with figuring out where you put Kyrie, and some people said you put Kyrie on Harrison Barnes uh, defensively, and the problem there is that then you're putting LeBron on, on Clay Thompson, and the Warriors will do what they do and just try to make LeBron work more than he should on defense. Otherwise, Clay's going to get open, and he has no conscience with those kinds of shots, and he'll just start shooting him. Yeah, and then, I mean, you're running LeBron into, you know, a million screens. And, and again, I think we've talked a fair amount before about kind of cumulative fatigue. And that's that's something that is already going to be advantage Golden State in this series just because of their superior depth. And they're, uh, depending on the pace the series is played, they're much more comfortable and familiar and used to playing at a high pace than, than, uh, than, than Cleveland is. Yeah, and with... Amon Shumpert is really their only plus perimeter defender in that sense. If you, other than LeBron, if you're going to count him, then you're also asking a lot of of Shumpert either way. I, I would actually put Shumpert more on Curry than I think David Blatt is going to, using the Bulls series as precedent. Yeah, the matchups are just are 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 weird, just because, especially from Cleveland side, just because they have guys they need to find where to put them. Um, and like we said earlier with James Jones, you know, he, where do you put him? Well, Kyrie is a guy who probably has to be on the court a fair amount. And, and so you have to figure out where to put him. Whereas James Jones, if you'd have to figure, if you have to worry about figuring that out, then maybe you just don't put him on the court. Yeah, it's definitely true. Something that, that Nate and I talked about on Dunked On is that I, th- I feel like Le- Kyrie should definitely be on the floor whenever one of Curry and Thompson is out. And then you kind of do a counter sub and have Della Vadova on the floor more often against those guys. That seems that that seems like a, a reasonable idea, just to to make sure you give Kyrie the most minutes possible, where he instead of having to chase Curry or Thompson can be on, I probably Barbosa. Yeah, I'd say Barbosa is yeah. the ideal defensive yeah. matchup for Kyrie. I mean, I don't necessarily want to put him on Livingston just because uh, uh, Livingston can can do some things with that. Yeah, um, I, I I think that's suboptimal, but I would definitely rather have him on Livingston than Claire or Steph. Yeah, it's just, so, I mean, we're already, I mean, getting into the matchups here, we're already just kind of seeing some of the difficulties that, that Cleveland has. And, and, and these are difficulties they'd have even with 100% Kyrie, I think. But yeah. now you add him being a little hobbled, and all of a sudden it's, uh, um, I guess being hobbled, you'd, you'd, you'd think he, that would be worse for him in a matchup with, say, Steph and less uh, deleterious, I guess, against a guy who's going to maybe bang on him more like uh, like Livingston. So maybe you could do a closer to closer to normal job on Livingston now uh, than he could against Curry. Yeah. Uh, just be, because he's not he, – it's, it's not necessarily lateral movement. It's just kind of holding position and stuff like that. And you don't have to worry about Livingston killing you with a catch-and-shoot off, off the – you know, catch-and-shoot off ball. Yeah, Exactly. Unless he catches it at like eight feet, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> right. 
But yeah, I, I think that the depth is going to be a major a major component of the series and sub patterning. And one of the things that ha- we've that has been talked about a lot in this playoffs, and you had an interesting stat on this, is that the Cavaliers have done a great job offensive rebounding, but it has been in a little bit of a narrower subset and is just spilling is just carrying over through the rest of the game. Yeah, basically when they're they're getting about a third of the available offensive rebounds when both Thompson and Mozgov are on the floor. And you know, that's I guess it's not surprising, but it's it's still comically large, though. Yeah, it's that's that is it's it would be the, would have led the league by a sizable margin this year. Um, they've still been pretty. They've been well above average still with just Thompson on the floor and been okay with just Mozgov on the floor. But kind of the dominant offensive rebounding, um, you can never get you can never get a stop. Actually, get a stop is more with both big guys on the floor, and you just wonder how much. They can play with both big guys on the floor uh, in this series, and but at the same time, from the Cleveland standpoint, I think they have to be able to get away with playing both big guys for more than you know the ten to fifteen minutes at the start of each half. Yeah, I mean they're good, especially considering they don't have a ton of depth to right. go small. Right. I mean, they, if if all if they're going to play if they're going to play small for forty minutes a night, then they're basically have a six man rotation. And, and at this, least one of those guys is hurt. At least one of those guys is already hurt, and another one might wear down. And and in LeBron, we've kind of just the amount he has to do. It's I think part of his subpar shooting this postseason has to do with just the, the sheer amount of stuff he he's having to do. And you know we saw fatigue catch up with him during the finals last year. I think it's fair to say that. That you know, like we like we've been talking about the cumulative fatigue probably played into the cramping situation. So, in terms of just the battle of attrition, uh, the series being played fast and small is edge Golden State. Yeah, and the Warriors don't suffer offensively other than the offensive rebounds. They don't suffer a ton of consequences because while Draymond is small in stature, the rim protection of those lineups has actually been pretty good. Yeah, and you know they. Those lineups have rebounded the ball okay. It's like it's not they haven't been, you know, at Atlanta level getting dominated on on the boards. They've been just about average with you know Draymond at center. And they've um, been facing some good offensive rebounding yeah. teams. So it's not it's not like you're dealing with a sample issue, other right. than size. Right. But yeah, I, I think that we'll see a lot of that, and also defensively, because of how smart the Warriors defenders are, I think that they would be able to capitalize on playing on when the Cavs play Thompson and Mozgov together. Obviously, you're keeping them off the offensive glass, but they're not going to beat you on the first shot as much, which is right. something which is a, a consideration because then guys like Bogut can help more. And granted, LeBron is an excellent passer. Maybe he'll let those guys on some lobs and everything like that, which the with Houston did, but Houston, from what I recall, didn't do that as much against the Warriors as they did against the Clippers. Yeah, that's true. And all, but also, I think that that Cleveland will probably probably be able to space the floor a little bit better than Houston did. I mean, there's a lot of times where you know Houston is Harden's dribbling the ball and he's got kind of Josh Smith in one corner and Corey Brew in the other corner, and yeah, the, there's going to be less space on the floor. Whereas if you know LeBron's doing something and he's got Kyrie and Jr. and and even Shump spotted up around him. All of a sudden, there's there's a little bit more you know room on the floor than than maybe Houston had. But at the same time, you know the like I think you you alluded to this kind of the primary matchup isn't gonna going to to hurt Golden State. I mean, what are you gonna are you gonna post Mozgov up because Draymond's guarding him? 
I think if you're uh, if you're Golden State, you say run that play every single time down the floor, and we'll live with what happens. Yeah, I I agree with you. And have the Cavs played that much with the lineup of Kyrie, Shump, Jr., and LeBron, and whoever else at center? That while that lineup to me might be their the four of their best five, and whoever at center, I don't think we've seen a ton of it this playoffs or even this whole year. I don't think we've seen a ton of it this playoffs. I think that has to do more with with you know Kyrie being. Yeah, I mean you 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 figure that you know he he missed most of the of the Atlanta series and and you know and then the Boston series they they weren't necessarily looking to to play small because they had the, the three healthy bigs for most of that series. So we haven't seen a ton of it, but it hasn't necessarily been available and indicated a whole lot. And it wasn't it ne- wasn't necessarily a great look against Chicago, given given how Chicago is always going to play two big guys, and they have some big they have you know their big guys are more guys who can um, exploit a smaller guy a, a little bit better than than Cleveland's perhaps. Something I asked in uh, a Warriors World Q and A I I did that's going to go out tomorrow, um, but you're a great person asked this to as well is. Is this is Cleveland the best team the Warriors have faced so far in the postseason? That's a tough question. I, I I've I've gotten accused of being a hater a lot <laughs> on Twitter because I don't think that like this iteration of Cleveland is actually that good. You know, I think that they've been better than who they've played, but and and you know that's credit to them because you can only you can only beat who they put in front of you, but. <sighs> Over an eight, over eighty two games, how much? How many games does this Cleveland team win? Mid fifties. Mid fifties is what I would say. Yeah, but they're a better. I think they're a better playoff team than regular season team, just based on the structural advantages they have. Possibly, but um, not not to a degree. They're like, oh, they're a sixty five win team now. You know, right. like that. You should treat them as a like that that way in the playoffs. And the craziest I, thing is somebody who covers the Warriors is that I don't think we've seen their best play yet in the playoffs. I, I don't either. That doesn't mean they'll do it necessarily. Yeah. Of course. Um, I mean, I guess they could be. I mean, you got to figure that that the teams that you and I and most people would probably say have been the second and third best teams. The Warriors played neither of them in San Antonio and in the Clippers, right? True. I mean, I you know even though even though Houston beat the Clippers, I I, I, I can't be the only one who who still thinks that the Clippers were screwiness aside, probably a better team and would have certainly, and, and probably would have, you know, assuming, you know, health and all that stuff would have provided a better challenge to Golden State than Houston did. I'd agree with that. So, I mean, especially and, with this, we're talking about this. This was a Houston team that we knew the whole time didn't have Monty Unis and didn't have Patrick Beverly. Right. This isn't, this isn't peak Houston. Peak Houston right. didn't exist in the playoffs. Right. And and just like peak Atlanta didn't exist in the playoffs, both kind of for lineup reasons, and especially not in the conference finals. <laughs> Boy, yeah, that's, and, and it, that's something to consider as well. I mean, the, Cleveland hasn't faced that real all together opponent. I mean, the the Bulls had were missing power for some of that time. The Bulls also had a an incomplete Derrick Rose is probably the politest way to put it, and then the Celtics were just not a playoff team. Right, and you know. It, it basically depends on how much you want to, how much weight you want to give to the the how the, the Eastern Conference Finals played out in terms of how much are you crediting Cleveland and how much are you 
kind of debiting Atlanta for, for how that series worked out. And you, you know, you can't take all credit away from, from Cleveland because, you know, they, you know, they, they, they swept a 60 win team in the conference finals and that's not nothing. But at the same time, that's the, the team they played wasn't the same team that won 60 games. And I, there's, there's no way you can slice it to, 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 to get past that. And how, and just figuring out how much of that was what Cleveland did to them and how much of that was just them kind of combusting, the Hawks kind of combusting, is I don't necessarily think we have the tools to completely unpack it, but it's a mix of both. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And it, it's it's so tough with the Hawks also because they were a team that was so reliant on their starters and their starters being 100% as a unit. And so the loss of Tabo and just the loss of everything else that happened meant that they didn't even get to see that lineup very much, especially, you know, obviously once Corver went out, it was gone. And so they were a team with a very specific strength and Cleveland never had to beat that specific strength. I mean, in their specific strength, I mean, one of the more specifically, their specific strength was kind of shooting and they just shot the ball terribly. And, you know, again, some of that is Cleveland's defense. Some of that is them missing shots. How much is each? Um, again, I've got, I've got, I've gotten accused of, of hating on Cleveland for pointing out that Atlanta just missed a lot of open shots in that series. And it's that, that's not to say that, you know, the Atlanta, the playoff Atlanta was not regular season Atlanta that makes those team, those shots. And so is it bad defense by Cleveland to say, you know, Dennis Schroeder, go ahead, hit that. I dare you. And if, if he, as he continues to miss and hesitate and miss and hesitate, it's not bad defense to make him keep doing that, but that's not necessarily defense that you can expect to play against Golden State, you know? Yeah, and Cleveland, you wrote a nice article about the idea of leaving the right guy open. Do you want to kind of summarize that concept for for how, for listeners who might not be familiar? Sure. It's basically, that's that's been one of the, you know, teams that that kind of have really good uh opponents shooting percentage uh from three especially on more open shots uh one of the theories is well they're just picking the right guys to leave open i mean if you doesn't matter you know it doesn't matter how open josh smith is you leave him open he's not well um first of all the clippers found out that maybe it does matter and if you leave him wide open maybe some of them will go in but looking at it that really doesn't seem to be the case Uh, i uh there's no over the course of certainly a playoff-sized sample, if you even weighting the uh, the 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 field the three percentage by the number of shots each player took, there's not really any relation between in the short term between who's taking the shots and the teams hitting them on wide open threes. And so, you know, Cleveland was letting a slightly above average group of shooters on the aggregate shoot open threes, and they weren't making any of them. Whereas some other teams. The Clippers and the Mavericks, I, I think, um, looking back on it, were uh, basically the teams the Houston beat were having you know a less proficient on aggregate group of shooters shoot from shoot open threes, but they were making all of them. You could call it a make or miss league, maybe. I I, I do call it that on uh, quite frequently. So <laughs> it's a long winded way of, of of saying that 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 once again I've proven the make or miss league exists. Well, yeah, and and what that <laughs> what that goes to is the idea of something happening and attributing that to chance or attributing that to some sort of prowess. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to regress the mean. That just means that you shouldn't expect it to repeat itself. Yeah. And, you know, there's also, there's a a third option, which we don't really talk about enough. And that's, you know, I I think I mentioned this earlier is 
Dennis Schroeder shooting a, a three-pointer in January is not the same as Dennis Schroeder shooting a three-pointer in May. And, you know, it's not just like playoff pressure. It's just he is not shooting, like demonstrably not shooting the ball as well right now. That's kind of a fact and what to ascribe it to is, is a whole other question, but um, it's not necessarily random chance that, that he's missing all the shots if right now he is a bad shooter. And that's, you know, I, it's, I'm veering sort of towards, you know, the realm of the tautological, but you, do you understand what I'm getting at? It's, yeah, it's this, I do. This, the, the kind of the ability isn't as constant as, you know, certainly in analytics, we like to pretend because you have to, because if, if that's a moving target, then, then everything's what, a moving target. Yeah. Then who knows what the heck's going on? So just remembering that, you know, guys play better and worse and it's not just random variation. Can I say how disappointed I am that your third way wasn't dark magic? That would have been a lot more fun. <laughs> Science. Science. Yeah. But yeah, this this series, it, it's going to test a lot of things. And one of the overarching theories that I have on basketball is that it's about choices. And it's about, so offensively and defensively, it's about giving your opponent bad choices and forcing them to pick their least favorite. And Curry and LeBron might be the two best guys in the league at doing that offensively because they're such tough covers. And what excites me is that you have those two guys in the same series, and there aren't, as, as far as I can tell, there aren't effective counters to really stop it. You just have to mitigate it as best you can. Yeah, and not, in, in both cases, not overreact to, the, to those tough choices. Right. I think that uh, teams that, that send swarming double teams at LeBron when he's posting up at 17 feet, that's what they want you to do. You know, that's, that's, oh, LeBron can hit that shot, so we can't let him take that shot. Well, LeBron can also miss that shot, and he does it, you know, more than he makes it. You know, you're talking about that post-up kind of step-back 19-footer that when it goes in, it's just a dagger. But he probably hits 35 40% of that shot, and that's, you know, on balance, you live with that. And, and sort of deciding where the line is between you live with it and it's something we got we have to, to scheme for and account for. Those are the really the interesting choices, especially kind of as they happen on the fly on the floor. Yeah, and something I was thinking about when I've been working on, you know, my thoughts on this finals is that Curry's off-ball skill also makes him a lot harder to cover in the sense that you can't throw a double at a guy who doesn't have the ball. You can try a ball denial, but you can't. There are certain things that you can't do with a guy who can thrive in that way. Exactly. And, you know, also there's, a, there's a, it's, it's a different skill set, really, to, you know, guard someone on the ball versus off the ball. I thought that, for example, like when Curry had the ball, I thought that Jason Terry did okay mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the Houston series. Um, but then when, when, you know, Steph was off the ball and they're running off screens, he's, he's not even in the picture as Steph is shooting because it's just a, and, you know, a guy like. Um, and Josh Smith didn't help that either. Like those kind of guys, like you, you basically when you're running a guy, when you're running a, when you're running off screen, when you're go, doing a guy off ball, you're relying sometimes on communication and help with other guys. Yeah, no, but uh, but I mean, kind of a big no-no um, that and and both Houston's point guards got caught with this a lot. Uh, frequently, I thought is kind of a guy who's running baseline screens and you try to cheat over the top, and both Prigioni and. Um, Terry got far enough behind. They tried to cheat over the top to cut off the pass. And then Steph just kind of faded to the corner and 
I believe he's like 12 of 13 from the left corner so far yeah, in the postseason. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how he's getting those shots is, is, and I'll, Corey Brewer did it a couple times too, I think. And that's maybe, jo- maybe Smith could have done a better job giving the, the guard a lane to, to run the baseline with Curry. But at the same time, that's, you've already gotten beat to the point where you're out of position and trying to cheat to catch up. And, yeah, that's definitely and, fair. Are you with me that uh, you, we talked about it a little bit in terms of overreacting? I, I felt for years and wrote about it years ago that the best way to defend a LeBron team is just to make him beat you as a scorer. You know, I um, it's a quote that came up earlier this week was uh, Chauncey Billups talking about how the uh, the Pistons played against Shaq in the 2004 finals. It's like they said, Ben, he's going to score 40 points on you a night, but he's going to score 40 points on just you a night. And we'll win if we do that. And and that's how that series played out. And it's not quite the same because a guy who can handle the ball like LeBron can do different things and, and get the ball in, in places and where you, you even if you don't want to help, you end up having to help and someone else gets the ball. So it doesn't work quite the same way as just kind of inviting a post up. Um, but it's, I think, a similar theory in that, you know, you, you don't like try to take the ball out of his hands because – you know, he's big enough and good enough passing that in the process of trying to do that, you're going to leave yourself open to him picking you apart with his passing. And still, if you're late, he's going to get to the basket and dunk on everybody. Yeah. And I think that to a point, the reason that I support that in a lot of circumstances, I actually wrote a piece about it saying that the the Heat should do the same to Dirk years ago. And the, the logic for me is that it's about whether your teammates can create if they're well covered. And if they can make shots, and obviously J.R. Smith can do that, you know he can make he can make shots with you know terrible shots. That's the only way they count. So it allows him to to rack up the points that actually count. But for the most part, with both these teams, their secondary guys aren't the strongest at that. They're good at other things, and so I, I feel like forcing them to decide the series would be an advantage for both teams. Yeah, no, I agree. Although I think that Golden State, just the way Steph operates. The fact that you have to, when he has the ball, you have to cover him to 28 feet kind of almost necessitates, you know, help. It just he's so, uh, he's so ridiculously efficient on, you know, shots worth three points off the dribble that, you know, the idea of make Steph beat you is, is almost, almost a little, little harder than to, 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 to execute and live with than the idea of make LeBron beat you. You know, as a scorer, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I definitely do. Another thing I've been thinking about with this series, and this is more intuitive than with the numbers because both teams have done well at home so far, but I feel like both these teams are entirely capable of beating the other team on their on on the road, you know, winning on the other team's home floor, which changes the dynamics as well because I've seen a lot of people, and, and it makes sense to predict a series if, you, if you're predicting the Warriors to do it in five or seven, but I don't, th- I don't have any doubt that the Warriors could win a game six in Cleveland, just like I have no doubt that Cleveland could win Game One in Oracle. I mean, if if you're a believer in, in cursed cities and stuff like that, uh, isn't Golden State closing it out in Cleveland perfect? Yeah, I mean, they can't close it out in a Game Seven, which I think would be yeah. the most the most Cleveland thing. The most Cleveland thing would be to somehow lose a game that can clinch it for them, but that at home and that kind of a thing. But if we're getting into getting into those dynamics, as somebody who has family in Northeast Ohio. <laughs> We're 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 starting to starting to get into some complicated ground. <laughs> am I am I cutting a little close to the bone here? Not for me. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm born and raised in the Bay Area, but uh, yeah. that but well, the, well. you you definitely are aware of those things with different franchises. And 
Yeah, I think that Warrior. Like, I'm predicting Warriors in six because I'm not scared at all of picking a picking a road team to win any game in the series. It's interesting you brought that up, by the way. I think that this is something that's just occurring to me now. Is the second round series the fact that Memphis kind of put that little scare in them might be really good for them because if you remember in like game two, especially like the Oracle crowd was tight. You know what I mean? Yeah, could, they were tight against Houston too. Yeah, but not as. Yeah, I, I that's true. They, I mean, there was those were close games, but the crowd was didn't feel as nervous as maybe maybe kind of at the end of game two and that that all that ridiculousness of of the the furious Houston. That was game two, right? With the, the when when he turned the ball over on the last yeah yeah, yeah 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 it all starts to run together now. <laughs> maybe that's a good thing that that uh, the, the Oracle crowd will be 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 ready to kind of. Help the team through uh, through a little blip here and there because they're, they they don't have the kind of the they've been through that first kind of oh it's the playoffs what happens now kind of fearfulness. Yeah, but at the same time, it could be different. Uh, we'll have to see. It's something that's been that's changed with the dynamics of the Warriors run. But if there will be a, a different crowd there just because of how expensive and valuable these tickets are, right? Uh, kind of as uh, Sam Cassell famously said of uh, North Carolina crowd a, a bit more of a wine and cheese crowd yeah i i think that we'll see some of that i mean if you can sell a single ticket and pay for most of your season then yeah. i can understand especially for like a game one when you say i'm going to get to see another game do one or the other and and oracle though i give it a ton of credit that even as they've become more prominent they've still stayed pretty good i, I still think the best crowd i ever saw for a playoff series at oracle was that first series against the nuggets which was because uh, I was I was living in L.A. during the uh, We Believe team, so I can't compare it to that. I was watching those games on TV. I wasn't there. So that those crowds were frenzied. Yes, though, like just the I, I can't I can't imagine how loud it the, that Baron Davis dunk is one of the, the loudest I can remember hearing a, hearing a crowd like over the TV. Of Even course. though they got walloped in that series. Yeah, but still, that, I mean, just that oh, for moment sure. of yeah. Absolutely. And Cleveland is going to be hyped for it. I mean, I think that as much as they, I think the fans were pretty patient about, you know, not expecting a title or anything this year. It's very hard to not get wrapped up in it when you get this close. Yeah. I kind of feel like the, um, kind of the national media was almost harder on the Cavs than kind of the, the, the local vibe, at least if, if kind of, you know, judging by, by Cavs Twitter, you know, is, is a useful measure. I don't want to say they, they had equanimity, but they were seemed less reactive, kind of, especially to a lot of the David Blatt stuff than kind of the the, the national perception. Is that am, am I misremembering with rose colored glasses? Or that or, seems uh, that seems pretty fair to, yeah. to me. That se- that seems pretty fair. And also, I think that they were less in the we have to win it this year camp than the national media. I think the national media wanted that story right away. Yeah, and when it when they struggled, then that was a story too. But that was going to happen. I mean, the Miami Heat struggled their first little while with yep. the with the big change. I mean, that's not a that's not a surprise at all. So I mean, I think that there is some of that. Though I always struggle with complaining about how a team is covered because it doesn't matter, doesn't affect the way they play. But at the same time, it does affect the way that we think about them to a degree. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I think that uh, you know, especially nationally, David Blatt. He's not a rookie head coach, but his first year in the NBA, he wasn't allowed to learn 
how to be an NBA coach, uh, except in the spotlight. And that kind of led to a lot of the, of the craziness where, you know, mis- mistakes were made because he, you know, there's things that are done differently, but you know, he's, he seems like he's done, done a very credible job, all things considered. Yeah. You know, I, I would say I, that Blatt and Kerr have been the two clear positive coaches so far in the playoffs. Like coaches that have added something in terms of adjustments and everything. Oh, and playoff Whitman, of course. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's the thing is that uh, it's it's. Um, I think was it Nate that was making this point on on Dunked On where he was talking about how uh, in Euro League coaches can be pretty ruthless about stuff. So the kind of Blatt saying, Jeff Teague and Dennis Schroeder, you beat us with jump shots, or don't beat us is is uh, and, and sticking with that all series. That's that that's kind of a pragmatism that is somewhat unusual. I mean, a guy like you're playing against a guy like Rondo. Okay. Everyone backs off him, but those, neither of those guys are actually terrible shooters over the course of the season. And just like conceding, having Matthew Delavidova go like four feet under the screen every time. That's, you know, that, that, that is an unusual adjustment that I don't think that, that uh, every coach would have gone for. And and on the other side, I think Kerr has done a really nice job adjusting in series at a, at a couple different points. Changing the way they defended Harden was huge for that series, but also having the guts to do what they did with Tony Allen, especially as brazenly as they did it, was affected. It not only affected the just the way that the Grizzlies had to play, but I think it gave the Warriors a kind of a swagger later on in that series that was useful for them. Sure, and there and, and that's definitely a team that. Uh... When they're going well, they they have that bit of swagger, and it, you know, it kind of manif- it most often manifests itself in kind of some of the shots that <laughs> Curry and Thompson take. You know, it's like if it doesn't go in, we're still going to be fine, and I'll take it again, and I'll make it next time. And between that and kind of Draymond's general carriage is kind of where you kind of see their swagger come out. Yeah, uh, do you have a prediction yet for this series? Are you going to make one? I've been consistently saying Warriors in five. Um, and you know, the fear of uh, like, I, I kind of want to be bold and predict a sweep, but I'm, I just uh, like, but LeBron is too loud in my mind to predict a sweep. I just think, I I don't think I could ever predict a LeBron team getting swept. It has happened, but I don't think I could ever predict it. But I just think the Warriors are just substantially better. Like they're, then again, I, I mean, I, I'm also someone who got the, Got the conference finals very wrong. Um, the, the Eastern Conference Finals very wrong. I mean, I predicted the, the Hawks in seven. In my defense, I thought that we'd see regular season Hawks, not playoff spectacular meltdown Hawks. <laughs> but and, so maybe and substantially I'm, hurt Hawks too. Yeah, and so maybe maybe I'm I'm underrating, you know, how good Cleveland is right now. But I don't know. I just so many things just seem. Like it's been kind of fortuitous and and not going to carry over against uh, uh, Cleveland, for example. I mean, against against uh, Golden State. I mean, for example, you know, one of the things we talked about the Cavs playing a big lineup and packing the paint and stuff like that. With uh, according to Evan Zamir's website, NBA Wowie, uh, against Chicago and and Atlanta. So not counting Boston because they don't count. Opponents have shot twenty percent from three with Thompson and Mozgov on the floor together. It's twenty percent. That's that's ridiculous. That's that's not sustainable. I mean, it's not likely to sustain against a team, especially like Golden State. 
And, you know, that the, the knock-on effects of that, you know, allowing Cleveland to get out and transition a little bit to allow them to pack the paint so that, that they can bother layups and, and let, you know, Mozgov uh, protect the rim like that. All of a sudden, if, if Golden State starts hitting, you know, 40, 45% is not, would not be a stretch. All of a sudden, that just changes the entire dynamic of the game. And everything that's been working for Cleveland defensively falls apart. And, and what happens then? Yeah, and and that gets into the idea of it being really unsustainable. And granted, it only has to sustain for seven games max, but right. it's it's been unusual, and they're facing an opponent that is less likely to do that than their previous ones. Yeah, and it's it's not just like you said; it's not just unsustainable. It's also the team least likely to sustain against that they're that are facing now. Of course, the, the better team that you would think. You know, based on regular season, that would be <laughs> unlikely. It would would have been Atlanta, but that's that's a whole other kettle of fish. And I think that you know, Atlanta struggled against more than than just Cleveland, whereas Golden State has had maybe some up and down shooting shooting, but they haven't had kind of the uh, the sea change of of horrific shooting that the Hawks did over the first couple rounds of the playoffs. If you had to pick a player other than LeBron and Curry who will have the biggest aggregate impact on the series, what's your instinct? My instinct is Mozgov, actually. Not so much wow. his impact, just his ability to stay on the floor. Mm-hmm. And and that's not just about him. That's just he's more of, I guess, a, a barometer than anything else. Like if he's if he's playing fifteen minutes a night, that's a great sign for Golden State. You know, yeah, and and I'm not I'm not suggesting that David Blatt should run him out there for 30 minutes a night because he's got to react to the you know the, the the how the situation is going and stuff like that. But if the games are going such that he can only play 15 minutes a night, the game is being played you know in ground of Golden State's choosing. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Do you have a feeling on if Kevin Love was playing in the series? You said Warriors in five. Would that be closer to? Let's say he's 100. percent Would that be closer to six seven? You know, I, it's tough to say because I don't. We don't know what playoff rotation Cavs look like with Kevin Love. True. You know, only, they, against, uh, only against the Celtics, and that doesn't count. Yeah, and you know, Cleveland played that whole series like they knew they were going to win that series in four games because they were going to win that series in four games, and so that's, you know, you you. Uh, I think we we can visually identify what playoff intensity looks like, and they didn't have it that series because they didn't need that series. You know. You can say, you know, maybe they should have added, but oh well. So I don't think we know what, what Cleveland playing their top eight-man rotation with healthy love, healthy Kyrie looks like at all. So that's, I, I don't know. We I, we do know that, you know, over that, that back half of the season, they were pretty comparable teams in terms of, you know, statistical measures like, you know, net rating and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So since LeBron came back from his little, his, his lebatical, as we've taken to calling it, the Warriors were slightly better, but only slightly, like a you know a point per hundred in terms of net rating. But that's with the Cavs and having the full complement of players. As much as people are trying to make this is about they're better without love, I don't believe that for a minute. I definitely don't either. Yeah. Anything else you want to share with listeners? Oh, I don't know. Is it anything else you want to talk about? A lot of a lot of coaching hires this week. Do you have a strong opinion on any of them? Not really. I think that I, the one thing that, that the, the negative opinion to Orlando hiring Scott Skiles was, was interesting. And I think it was uh, more kind of about aesthetics because he's not a, he's not a happy fun guy and his teams don't play happy fun basketball. 
Then Especially not Tobias Harris. <laughs> yeah. Poor Tobias so, Harris. Yeah. But I, uh, I think I'm excited about Gentry with the Pelicans. So I get that actually that then that this is something I kind of want to talk about and have talked about a fair amount is w- <sighs> expecting Alvin Gentry or any coach really to have a, a big impact outside of, you know, personnel, I think is you're, you're just asking for disappointment. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, what, and, and defensive and defensive effort, I guess you could say. And Gentry is not the greatest coach for that. So for me, it's, it's more about how he, how he utilizes talent and, and for building a foundation. I think what, what I have been, I've been fascinated with Anthony Davis for years. I'm sure we've talked about him at length. And what I've wondered for a long time is where does his ideal fit offensively and where is it defensively? And I feel that we will get closer to a definitive answer with three years of Alvin Gentry than we would have with three years with another coach. I, I just, what are you you basing that on? I'm basing that on his experience from what I from what I can tell when I watch his teams, both as a head coach and an assistant. He's been a force for just being like, okay, let's see what works. And this, I give a lot of people on this Warriors coaching staff credit. Well, granted, David Lee was hurt and helped it, but they tried a lot of things that, particularly with with Draymond at the four, that the previous administration had not done a whole heck of a lot of. <laughs> and so that's and that's good, you know. And the Clippers, I thought the Clippers were looked. They they tried some things. They looked good. They had limited personnel again due to depth issues. And the Suns, the Suns did that. And he also Gentry's talked about it. He talked about that he wants to use Davis differently. I don't know yet. I think intuitively for me, Davis is is better offensively at center. Defensively, that creates some challenges, but not a ton. But I, I just want to see where it can go. I'm just it's, it's amusing that we're using the the previous Warriors administration as a baseline of innovation. Oh like, no no no! I, I mean it's it's a it's a quite low bar. I mean you're yeah. talking to the person who probably railed on that more than any other individual. But at the same time, you do get credit for doing it. Yeah, innovation above um, above Mark Jackson is, is the new. Uh, it's a new it's acronym. Like, it's 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 like the coaching version of warp or something like that. <laughs> I think that's. Well, I that's think re- he'd be level. below a replacement coach in terms of innovation. <laughs> Possibly, because well, it, actually, we t- you talk about years. So like it, like last year, he he had the uh, the Warriors playing uh, nineteen ninety four basketball, so he was minus eighteen years. <laughs> and then in that he's eighteen years below replacements. In, uh, in 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 that stat, I like it. I'm gonna run with it. Yes. Hey, <laughs> I, after after going through what, what what was it that I got I got I got shouted out at the beginning of one of your recent pieces. I'm on a run now, so I'm gonna take. Oh it. Uh, yeah. Um, oh so, oh feedback loops. Fe- feedback loops. Yeah, and which I'm are actually, my baby. Yeah. Well, I I've I have more coming on that. Woo. Um, yeah. Soon. Well, and I'm sad that the Rockets are out of it because the Rockets, and I think some of the work that you're doing from what I've heard of what's coming up might be on this. The Rockets are the ultimate feedback loop team, and there are a lot of reasons for it, partially because their half-court offense isn't that good, but I'm a little bit sad that they're gone because that series with the Cavs would have been fascinating. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, you know, we talk about their their half-court versus full-court offense. It's sort of embodied in the person of Corey Brewer, who is like... One of the best, like, open court players in the league, you know, by in terms of like efficient scoring and stuff like that, and one of the absolute worst half court players in the league, and so just the, the difference between Houston getting a stop on defense and and their next offensive possession and and not is, is something. 
<laughs> yeah. And, you, and from what you've seen, the Warriors don't have as big a disparity, be, partially because they're they they do a good job offensively. But do they? Is it like because their their baseline is a little bit higher? Is it still a big a notable difference though? Uh, it's it's a less than average difference, but it's not a minuscule difference. I think they were they were the best team in the league scoring versus set defense and the third best team scoring in a live ball situation. So it's not like obviously they're better in a live after the you know live ball situation. You get you get a defensive rebound, you get a steal. They were better because everyone was better. Every team at least certain individual players weren't, but they they were they weren't as much better as some teams, but that's just because they were by a, just a massive margin, a one percent in, in you know in a stat like this is a is a pretty huge gap. By, by a pretty large margin, they were the best team in the league scoring against the set defense. Getting ahead of myself a little bit, but uh, something they always used to talk about, like kind of the the great Duke teams in like the uh, the early to mid nineties. How you knew they were playing, they were be really aggressive, good defense, good offenses. They would make more free throws than the opponent would take. Well, the uh, the Warriors scored better in the half court than they allowed in the open court. If that makes sense. Yeah, this season. Well, that helps explain why you why you're high on them winning. <laughs> that that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, and that so that's in, in any event that's. That that's wow. That, that's a that's a preview of, of stuff I'm working for. If people are as nerdy as the two of us are, and if they're <laughs> listening to this, odds are they are <laughs> probably. All right. So I think that's I think that's about as high note as we can end on. Um, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Seth Partnow for taking the time. You can read him at the Nylon Calculus, Washington Post Fancy Stats, B-Ball Breakdown, and numerous other sites. He's a great writer. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Seth Partnow. That's S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W. Love talking with him, like reading his work. He's very talented, as I said. And I'm really excited for this finals, not only because I'm lucky enough to get to cover a couple of the games of it, but because it's such a balance of individual and team dynamics, also with the idea that we don't really have a track record for either of these coaches, and so they're going to be on the biggest stage of their career They've for as a coach. They've both done other things, and Blatt's coached on plenty of big stages. But this is exciting for me in that sense, and LeBron and Steph are two singularly dominant players, and so to be able to see them go at it, even though they're not going to be guarding each other a whole heck of a lot, is going to be very exciting. I'm also thrilled with you know what's going to be coming up with Real GM Radio. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or through whatever feed you use. Uh, I can I should be able to get an XML feed link up very soon. Also, it's much appreciated if you write a review. That helps connect other people with the podcast. You can also send feedback to me directly, uh, Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X on Twitter or Daniel.LaRue at RealGM.com. I read everything, I respond to as much as I can, and I appreciate it all. So thank you so much for listening, take care, and make it a great day.
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. 